Welcome to the Victorian Parent Council VPC Parent Podcast Series. VPC is a registered charity organisation dedicated to everyone who support parents in educating their children. I'm Jackie Vanderbilt, your host today. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Justin Coulson. Welcome, Justin. It's really nice to talk to you, Jackie. Thanks for having me on. Justin, look, I think it's always a lovely way to start off by having our guests to introduce themselves. So I'll, I'll hand over to you. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, the short version of me is that um, when I finished high school, I, I was the high school boy that you just hope your child won't be. Um, I was a really, really... Um, I wasn't a good student. I finished high school. My parents paid a lot of money for me to go to a very expensive school back in the 80s. And... Um, well, it was a it was a, a really bad experience for all of us. Uh, I just wanted to be a radio announcer, so I ended up becoming one after high school. If you've ever listened to the radio, you'll know that those FM radio announcers don't sound like they've spent a lot of time at school, um, and and that was certainly uh, certainly the case for me. I worked in radio for about ten years. At the end of my um, at the end of my twenties, I went back to school. I had a wife and a couple of kids, and I was struggling as a parent. And my objective was to become a better dad. I didn't really have any career aspirations at that point. I just wanted to learn how to dad because I was making a pretty big mess of things. And so that's what I did. I ended up staying at school as a full-time student until my mid-30s. I spent eight and a half years full-time with two kids and then three kids and then four kids and then five kids. I had to do a year at TAFE because no university would accept me. Uh, then I got into uni and I uh, did a psychology degree. I ended up graduating with first class honours um, and then I did a doctorate in psychology. Um, so I had my PhD and then worked as an academic. I began, I guess you'd call it the beginnings of an academic career. But after a couple of years of doing that and lecturing and researching and writing those research papers, um, I'd written my first book. I was doing a lot of media interviews and being on the TV and started giving talks and just loved sharing with people the things that I'd learned that had changed my family uh, so much for the better. And so I quit my academic career and I started all over again. I started writing books full time and giving talks. And that's what I do now. About a year and a half after I started that business, um, we had our sixth child. So nowadays, my wife, Kylie, and I are the parents of six daughters um, our eldest is 20 years old and our baby girl is five. We've got six girls in between 20 and five. And um, I write books and visit schools and visit organizations and give talks and do all that I can to help people to be well. My, my PhD was in positive psychology mm-hmm. and family life. So I help people to be well. I talk a lot about well-being and positivity and resilience. And I talk and write endlessly about raising kids and having strong marriages and partnerships and families. Um, That's, that's pretty much it. I'm in the, in the media a lot and um, love, love what I do. It makes, I'm told regularly, but it makes a wonderful difference for people. Great. Well, we've got the right person. That means I think lived lived experience um, is absolutely essential in this game because, uh, you know, parents don't want to hear necessarily from, experts telling them how to do things they want to hear from experts who've been living the living the same life that they've been living and walking the same walk so i think that's uh that they're pretty good credentials on uh from our point of view anyway justin and jackie it's interesting you say that because uh, as much as i struggle to share this i've discovered that there's power in sharing it and that's why i choose to um some some years ago with one of our children we 
we had some struggles and they were significant and they were all around the kind of issues that I usually help other parents with, you know, kids that are acting out, kids that are being rebellious, kids that are um, not necessarily living their lives the way we hope that they will. They're causing the sorts of challenges that, um, that don't leave parents feeling good and that could actually be quite destructive for the child. And, and so, uh, I mean, things got so bad at one point that I remember saying explicitly to my wife, Kylie, I, I don't think that I should ever write another word about how people should raise their children because we are obviously getting this wrong and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, it, was, it, it was a very, very hard time. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, over time, that child started to come back around and, and, and certainly is making much better choices again now for which we're grateful. Um, yeah. But when I share that, a lot of parents will say, we're so glad that you continued because it's, <laughs> it's, it's real life, right? I mean, I've, I've had that child who is impossible to connect with and won't allow us to help them to modify their behavior so that they can behave in, in better ways and, and make safer, healthier, wiser choices. So uh, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but unfortunately, I have been there with one of my kids and I do know how it feels. Um, and I've got that real life experience as well as a whole lot of book learning and, and that sort of thing. So I love what I do. Oh, look, that's, that's heartening to hear. I think we've all been there, if, if not on a regular basis, certainly at some point, that's for sure. Justin, about communication at home, what, what advice can you, I mean, I'm talking about some real hot button issues that have come up for parents um, in the last little while around the parent engagement space, but communication at home between parents and children, what's the, what's the advice from the expert, the lived, the lived experience expert? Yeah, this is a this is a very broad question, Jackie. Um, I think most important of all, um, we need to make sure that our communication is respectful and kind, even when we don't feel like being respectful or kind. Um, I, I often say to parents, "Your child is a child, and they'll act like a child. You're an adult. What are you going to act like?" Um, which is, I mean, that's a little bit confronting. It's a little bit provocative. Uh, but it's a, a kind of that little bit of a kick up the bum to say, well, we actually do know better. And when we know better, we need to do better. We need to set that example for our children, no matter how aggravating, how challenging, how difficult they're being. Um, in, in relation to communication, a lot of parents say, well, my kids won't talk to me at all. You know, they just shut me out. They come home from school and I say, how was your day? And they say, fine. And I say, well, what did you do? Nothing. Well, what did you learn? Nothing. Uh, you know, we, we can't get anything out of them. And then when there's challenges around um, difficulties with, let's say, um, friends or uh, something more serious, a mental health challenge, or maybe a child who's starting to have doubts about who they really are. Maybe they're struggling in, in any number of other ways. Uh, they can sometimes close down. Uh, in, in those instances, parents, unfortunately, will often... They'll, they'll make some really civil attempts to get their children to open up. But when that doesn't work, they'll do one of two things. They'll either turn away, that is, they, they shrug their shoulders, say, fine, come and talk to me when you're ready. Uh, or they'll say, oh, look, you'll be right. That's the well-meaning version of turning away. But regardless of what we do, when we turn away, we're kind of dismissing our children. We're saying, well, <clears throat> you know, I, I've got nothing for you. You've got nothing for me. There's no point continuing the conversation. The alternative is that some parents get quite frustrated and they turn against. 
their children. They get angry. They say, for goodness sakes, you need to show me some respect. If I'm trying to talk to you or they'll say, if that's it, uh, go to your room and think about what you're saying or not saying. Um, and, and, and sometimes they'll even turn themselves into their children's enemy by turning against them. My, my sense is that those are not helpful in most situations. What those responses tend to do is really rupture the relationship that we uh, are experiencing with our children. It seems to me that it's better if we can turn towards our children. Um, there's a wonderful quote that I share from a mentor of mine. His name is Wally Goddard. And he says, you don't do heart surgery with sledgehammers, which is a wonderful metaphor for the way sometimes we as parents dive into those conversations with our children that are challenging. Um, <clears throat> when we perform heart surgery, we need to do it with tremendous care, with precision, we, we have to be so sensitive. Um, and the work of relationships really is the work of the heart. So I think um, as tempting as it is to start metaphorically getting into there and, you know, bashing and smashing our child's feelings to make our point with a level of power, this is usually an unhelpful response. We might get our way, but we might also lose trust and even the relationship. Dustin, how much of this do you think is uh, parents... Well, the, the breakdown in communication is due to parents being time poor, rushing themselves. Um, I, I mean, I know that I am extremely busy. My children are older now. But at the time, I, looking back over my time when they were younger, I know that I perhaps wasn't as present as I should have been or could have been. And I'm just acutely aware of parents now that I'm speaking with that's a similar, a similar issue. In fact, it could possibly even be getting worse. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say that because I, I was planning on talking about that pressure and the way it interferes with our ability to communicate well with our children. Uh, not now, I'm busy. Uh, my my favourite quote of all time when it comes to parenting, it's a little bit trite, it's a bit cheesy, but I, it just, it gets me. Um, to a child, love is spelled T-I-M-E. You've probably heard that one before. It's, um, it's certainly not original to me. Um, I, I often do say, though, uh, that attention, just like dollars are the currency of our economy, attention is the currency of our relationships. Um, the, the pressure that we experience as parents is, is pretty significant. And even when we're not under pressure, sometimes we just want some time to ourselves. We want to sit on the couch and talk to another adult. We don't want to have to deal with all this garbage that the kids are bringing to us. And it feels like garbage to us at times, but to them, it's not garbage. It's real. It's what they're struggling with. I can't emphasize enough just how important it is that we stop, look and listen, no matter how time poor we are. Now, if we're really truly in the middle of something that cannot be interrupted, I think that it's appropriate to say to our kids, I really want to hear what you're saying. It's so important to me that I listen to you. But right now, my priority has to be this. I'll be ready for you though in 15 minutes and we can have a proper chat. Or maybe at the end of the day, we sit down on the end of their bed and we stop, we look, we listen. And when I say stop, look and listen, I mean, we literally stop what we're doing. We don't keep tapping away on the computer. We don't keep swiping at the screen. Uh, we literally stop what we're doing. We look them in the eyes. I think it's always interesting to pause and just consider when was the last time I really looked into the eyes of my child as we were communicating? Yeah, I look, that's, they're, they're beautiful and really simple points. And it's not brain surgery we're talking about. Um, quality time over quantity time. What's your view on that? Well, 
um, I think that with quantity comes improved quality, mm-hmm. uh, which is an unfair thing to say to a busy parent, I know. Uh, the, the, the challenge is that the, the quality of our time, no matter how much we try to make a quality time, if we haven't invested the quantity to develop the relationship and build the trust and have the opportunities to be close, small amounts of time won't be meaningful. They won't necessarily be helpful because the relationship isn't, isn't built on a foundation of time and trust. So my, my feeling is that to the extent that it's possible, we want to be having positive experiences with our children consistently, which will allow for us to have quality experiences, even when we do have a shortage of time. Um, that's, that's really the, the crux of it. Our children have got to know that we're there for them, even when we're in a hurry. I, I love the idea of, of quality time. I just don't think that we can have it without quantity, at least from time to time. It doesn't have to be all the time. I'm not suggesting that we've got to give up our full-time job and go back to part-time so that we can have any time at all, you know, that have, have quality time. But, but quality comes from quantity. And it's really just the ordinary time, isn't it? Just spend, just just being together. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Uh, again, when I talk to parents and say, "When do you have the best quality time with your kids?" They consistently say, "When there's no distractions." And I say, "Well, what times are those?" And the responses are typically um, at the table. Most families that I talk to or work with or give advice to uh, adopt a no screens policy at the table. So there's no TV on in the background. There's no laptops. There's no tablets. There's no phones at the table. When we're at the table and we're sharing a meal, we're actually sharing time together. Um, parents will also say bedtime. Why? Because there's no distractions. It's just me and my child. And we're sitting together. The child's laying down. The pressure's off. Everything's done for the day. And we're now relaxed so we can actually... So I've got this thing that I say to parents all the time. When emotions are high, intelligence is low. When the pressure is on, we don't think clearly and we certainly don't open up and have quality time together. It's about having those moments. One of my favorite things to talk about with parents is create traditions. Uh, in our home, we've created Super Saturday. So every Saturday, we have uh, a couple of hours together as a family where we do these low-cost or no-cost activities. We go for a bike ride. We go for a walk in the bush. We race down to the beach because we live close enough that we can get away with that. Uh, we, we find something that we can do as a family. Sometimes if it's a lousy weather day, we might just sit around the dining table and play games. But we have this super Saturday that's absolutely concentrated and focused on not, not spending money on big activities, but just time together. The consistency of doing that makes such a difference. Um, I've got a 15-year-old who loves to spend time with me and she's discovered that I like words so we play boggle at least three or four times a week. It might only be for 10 or 15 minutes at a time, but it keeps us connected. My eldest daughter, who's moved out, um, I visit with her every Sunday morning. I wake up at 5.30 in the morning on a Sunday. And yes, I know how horrible that sounds because I do it. Uh, every Sunday, 5.30, I drive to her house. She lives about half an hour away. And we go for about a 10K walk. It takes us about two hours. No agenda. I just walk with my daughter. And we talk about her life. We, well, I listen about her life as she tells me what she's up to and how things are going, what's happening in her relationships, what's happening at work, what's happening with her, getting ready to go back to school and study now that she's had a year off to, I, I guess, grow up a little bit and, and work out what's most important to her. 
Um, we, I, I don't think that taking time out to be with our kids is convenient ever, but nobody ever said, I'd like my life to be more convenient. Let's have kids. <laughs> true. That's so true. <laughs> so what I'm hearing, Justin, is finding something, uh, something small, but something simple that connects you with each child. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, for, for one of my kids, it's a banana milkshake after netball. Yep. And it's, it's, it's really that simple. Um, we, we find different things that connect us to our children in different ways. And then we turn them into traditions. We make them happen all the time. Uh, I saw a beautiful little ad um, from a French telecommunications company uh, just the last couple of days. Somebody forwarded it to me. And it's a, it's a dad. He's got this really cheesy little song that he sings to his son. And his son, when he's little, he loves to dance and sing the song with dad. And then the son becomes, you know, he, he enters middle childhood and it's still fun to dance in the, in the park or on the, in the shopping center or in the living room while dad sings that fun little song. But then he becomes a teenager and all of a sudden dad singing that song to him isn't so cool, but dad keeps singing it anyway. And then he becomes a, a sort of, a, you know, a young adult, late, late teens, early twenties. And when dad starts to sing the song, he rolls his eyes. He's like, you've got to be kidding me, dad. This is just, you know, grow up for goodness sakes. Then it fast forwards uh, maybe about eight, eight or 10 years. I guess the, the, the son is now 28 or 30 or 32 and the phone rings. Dad picks up the phone and it's the son. So now dad's in his sixties. It's the son and he's singing the song. The song's on in the background and the son's nursing his own little baby and he's doing the dance and dad's dancing in the lounge room in a different house as his son dances with the grandson the baby. And, and I think it's just that beautiful little tradition where we create these moments of connection and then we hold on to them. We, we create opportunities with our kids where we, we have that little dance or we have that little song or we have that little saying, or we have that little wrestle or we, you know, we, we have that favorite cafe that we always visit or that favorite park where we go and kick a footy, throw a netball, uh, toss a Frisbee. It's those moments that are just so magic and they, they, they're free. They happen in our living rooms and in our kitchens and in the park down the road. They don't happen on the fancy holiday that we've saved up for a lifetime for so that we can go to America and go to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth where you get to stand in line for two hours. And that's not where it's at. It's actually in these little moments. Very simple stuff. So other, other family time uh, suggestions? Um, okay. Uh, well, one thing that I recommend as much as I hate to recommend it, but I'm going to pull out the big guns here is camping. Now I know that camping nowadays costs as much as a five-star hotel cost 20 years ago because camping has become expensive. But um, look, I, I don't like camping. I like, if I'm going to go away, I like to stay in a, in a, in a, in a bed. I prefer to have, have walls around me so that I can't hear what's happening in the tent beside me. Um, I, I, I like air conditioning. I, I like electricity. I, I like to be able to pop down to a cafe or a restaurant down the road and, and order some food. Or if I'm with the kids, just grab some pizza. Um, but I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Jackie, kids love camping. Love it. Yep. That's so true. I <laughs> love it. And, and, and there's something special about camping. When you go camping, you do kind of leave all your distractions behind in a way that you don't when you're sitting in a hotel room or, in a, you know, any, anywhere else where you do have electricity, for example. There's something beautiful about going for a, a, a 24 or 48-hour camp. I mean, the, the reality is sometimes it will take you longer to pack the car and unpack it and set up camp and pull it down than you're actually camping for. 
But over the years, we've tried to create a tradition of camping with our kids as much as I don't enjoy it, where it's either every month or every three months, we go out and we do that camping and the kids love it. They're outside nature. And nature is fuel for our soul. It's so good for our well-being. We're more active. We go to bed when the sun goes down or we sit around the fire mar uh, marshmallow toasting. Um, it, there's something that's just so perfect about it for building relationships and memories with our children and creating these traditions. So that's my big one. Um, <clears throat> other than that, though, I, I think that each family just has the opportunity to think, what do we do? What makes us us? Um, I, I love to ask this question or get, get families, get parents to ask this question of themselves and of their children. What makes us want to come home? Mm. When we can answer that, when we know, I, I, and, and I, I know some people say, well, it's, it's the great cooking or it's the food in the fridge, or, but, but I'm talking about the, the relationships. What, what do we do as a family that makes me want to come home? As we tap into that, we, we work out who we are as a family. We establish that family identity. And that builds a sense of cohesiveness, cohesion within the family. Mm. Kids feel like they belong. Parents know what the agenda is. We've got security and predictability and stability, and we know where our family is going. It's really where we build competence in young people, isn't it? Those family connections. I and mean, when you're talking about that, I'm, you know, sort of thinking from a, uh, you know, a psychology point of view. You know. You know social competence, that family cohesion, all of those uh, core competencies that make uh, belonging, functioning human beings what they are. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting. I, I came across uh, a, um, a document just recently. It was called the Future of Jobs Report. It was from the World Economic Forum from 2016. So we're just going back a couple of years. And the the forecast from 2016 was these are the top job, the top 10 job skills that we're going to want in 2020, which as we know now is only around the corner. Um, the top 10, number one, complex problem solving. Mm -hmm. Number two, critical thinking. Number three, creativity. Number four, people management. Number five, coordinating with others. Number six, emotional intelligence. Uh, number seven, judgment and decision-making. Number eight, service orientation. Number nine, negotiation. Number 10, cognitive flexibility. Of the 10, seven of them are directly related to communicating with others, working with others, solving problems with others. Uh, this is what the work of family is all about. This is what we navigate on a daily basis if we're doing it well. And if we can help our children to do it well, what we're actually, because kids don't learn that stuff at school. They're still doing STEM at school, even though that's not in the top 10. Look, I agree with you on that. And I think so much is uh, put back onto schools. You know, what are schools doing about this? Here's a new social issue, a new social problem or social challenge. And so it's back to, the, the focus goes back to the school, what's happening with the school. But fundamentally, a lot of those issues are family issues. And, and we don't go back and say, well, what are we doing to support families to do this job, do this, you know, the, the, the work of growing children or growing or raising adults, really. <laughs> who's, who's, how do we support our families and parents to do that? I think that's a really important point that you're raising, that it is the work of families to do this job, not the work of the state. Just recently, uh, I wrote an article for uh, the News Corp papers for the Daily Telegraph and, and so on. I wrote an opinion piece for them. And um, I, I was talking about the 
Greg Hunt, the uh, federal health minister, uh, announcing a new strategy that's aimed at building resilience in childhood so that we can prevent mental illness for Australians. I know that I've kind of gone a little bit of a tangent with, with that introduction, but while I talked about the mental health of young people and, and what the government is doing and what still needs to be done, I highlighted something in the final paragraph that I think is really quite relevant to what you've just said. And, and this overarching conversation about um, the pressure that parents are facing and the pressure on families and the fact that we are trying to outsource so much more to the school because families and neighborhoods and the village are, are really struggling to, to, to manage. Uh, and, and this is what I said. I said, connections with parents and peers, developmentally appropriate skill acquisition through play, physical activity outside daily, time to be still without screens and the opportunity to give to something larger than the self is scientifically shown to bolster mental health and sustain resilience through life's challenges. It takes a village, sure, but the village needs to slow down and concentrate on what matters most. Right now, I don't think that the village is slowing down or concentrating on what matters most. Uh, and, and that's why we have to have conversations like this about how we can actually do that within our homes because the village isn't supporting us in our families. The village has adopted a growth is good mentality at all costs and families are suffering because of that. Justin, your point earlier about service of others, that, that being a, a required, you know, an ideal skill for 21st century jobs or whatever, whatever the title was, uh, uh, that's a service in family and service within family is, I think, is a very underrated uh, role and an underrated characteristic and value. Can you talk a little bit about how you have done this with your family? Uh, well, yeah, I can. I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to because I don't want people to think that I'm out there showboating or patting myself on the back. So, so what I might do is I might share a couple of examples of uh, things that my family has done, but I, I'll intermingle them with things that other families have done as well. Um, so that it, I'll, I'll just say, I know a family who, and it might be mine, but it might also be somebody else's family. That that might be a good way to go. Um, I know one family who at, at Christmas time uh, look for um, elderly people in their neighborhood who perhaps don't have the level of social support that many others enjoy. And they'll find ways to bring joy into their homes. Uh, they'll find ways to kind of adopt another grandparent for Christmas or, or something like that. And they build, what I love about that is it builds a sense of community and uh, our neighborhoods have disappeared. And, and that's something that works. I know another family who um, would do, do a big bake day, bake cupcakes and cookies and all that kind of thing and write some Christmas cards and pop down to the local ambulance service and the local fire service and the local police station and drop them off and say, happy Christmas. I know some families who go out and do all sorts of fundraisers so that they can uh, generate uh, funds for women's shelters or people who are uh, experiencing and, and trying to get away from domestic and family violence. I, I was speaking with a mum just recently who took her, her daughter to Uganda um, and they spent some time in orphanages and in schools for a couple of weeks. What an incredible experience that is. Uh, what these kinds of things do, what these kinds of experiences do is they, they open up our children's eyes to just how privileged and abundant our lives are. 
But there's something remarkable that happens to our children when they see their best efforts to help others bearing fruit and changing lives. Um, one of my favorite stories, this one is actually about my family, <clears throat> is uh, one of my daughters a few years ago came home from school terribly sad. It was the end of the school year, um, a couple of weeks until school was due to break up. And she was crying. So she literally fell into my arms at the end of the school day. And I hugged her and, and, and said to her, Abby, it seems like you've had a really rough day at school. Do you want to talk about it? She opened up to me straight away and said, Dad, I just found out that my best friend's mum, uh, who uh, she, she's, she's got cancer. Um, she's had it before. They got rid of it. It's come back. They haven't caught it in time. She's going to, she's not going to live until Christmas. They've given her a, a three or four week time frame. That's, that's all she's got left. And then she broke down crying again. And so I worked with my, my little girl, Abby, about how she could help uh, to support her friend through such a, such a sad time, such a, a, an enormous time of grief. Early the next year, as school kicked off, probably week two or week three of school, Abby came running home one day full of enthusiasm. She was over the moon. She said, Dad, 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 I know what I want to do. And my response was, about what? I, I had no idea what she was talking about. And she said, well, about my friend and their family and the, the loss of their mum. She said, I want to do the shave for a cure. And I said, well, that's, that's fantastic. What colour are you going to dye your hair? Because, you know, you, normally the girls dye their hair and the boys are the ones that shave it. And she's a grade eight girl. She's 13, 14 years old. And, and grade eight is a tough year. So I was really surprised when she said, Dad, I'm not, I'm not dyeing it. I'm shaving it. It's, it's gone. We had a, a wonderful conversation about what might happen if people didn't respond well to what she'd done because sometimes teenagers can be mean. Uh, they can call names. They can be really unkind. But she was firm. She said, Dad, um, my hair will grow back. My friend has just lost her mum. She's not coming back. This is something that I'm doing to help. So we started fundraising and making, um, finding opportunities to generate money to help the Leukemia Foundation with this really wonderful cause. And a couple of weeks later, my eight-year-old daughter, Annie, came to me and said, Dad, I want to do the shave with Abby. And then um, we, we, we showed up on the day in the, in the hairdresser salon and I did a Facebook live because I've got a, a large number of people who follow me on Facebook. And I thought, well, let's, let's invite them to watch what's going on and get them to contribute to this. And we raised thousands of dollars, Jackie. It was amazing. The, 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 the outpouring of um, kindness from people who were so delighted to see my girls doing something really big, shaving their heads um, so that they could, raise money for a, for a valuable cause. And Abby's best friend was in the hairdressing salon with her dad, these two grieving family members. And there were tears all over the place as they cried, as my daughters shaved their heads. And then another one of my six daughters said, I'm going to do it too. And so she did it, but she wanted to keep her fringe. And then another one, my, my eldest, she said, well, I actually like my hair too much, but I'll have an undercut. And that's my contribution. Um, and, and then my wife said, I'm not going to let my daughters do this without being involved in it myself. So my wife sat down and we shaved her head, uh, which meant that I had to do it as well. So all of a sudden, one little girl, a grade eight girl, making a sacrifice to help others has led to our whole family doing it. But more to the point, people got on board with that sacrifice. They got on board with that effort. And we raised all of this money to help people who are going through such a trying and traumatic 
grief-stricken time. It was, it was such a privilege to do it. But the main lesson was what it taught my kids. My kids learned that they were brave. They learned that even if kids bully them and they got given such a hard time by some of these kids afterwards, um, the kids learned valuable things about themselves and about what matters and about how good it feels to make a difference and to help and to serve. They got to see that they can actually go out and raise money and, and have an impact in the world. They, the, the, the experiences that come from giving and thinking beyond our own family and beyond our own immediate four walls of our living room are so valuable for building well-being, building resilience, building that self-belief, recognizing that I can do something in the world building relationships. It's, it's extraordinary what giving does. I think that's uh, what you're talking about is um, it's pretty remarkable. Not only did your year eight girl know that she could do all of this, but she knew that she had the, she had the backing of the family as well. So even if the, even if the rest of the world was giving her a hard time, she knew that there was, there was that love and support and everybody was in behind her at home, which is pretty fantastic too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what I think, is pretty amazing is that in most families, if a child comes up with an idea to try and change the world in some small way, I think most parents are going to be supportive of that. I think most of us recognize the value in, in that and the character development that comes for those children who are involved in that cause. Yep. Justin, about social scanning, because you know, you you're, what you were talking about there is, really reaching out and, and looking outside of the four walls of the family home. I think families and parents in particular are in that really unique position of actually assisting their children and learning about, you know, social scanning, looking at outside of what's going on and having quite, um, having intentional conversations about, you know, there are other people that are not as well off as us, there are people that are struggling or look, there is someone that is like us and, and making those connections that really can't be done in any other place other than a family environment. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think that I agree with you. Um, something that I've seen a lot, so I've, I'm, I'm in the process, I'm not quite sure when this podcast will actually drop so everyone else can hear it, um, but I've just finished writing literally this week uh, a brand new book that will launch in January or February of 2020 about teenage girls. It's called Misconnection, Why Your Teenage Daughter Hates You, Expects the World and Needs to Talk. And one thing that I found as I surveyed close to 400 Aussie teen girls was the, the level of, um, the level of uh, comparison and competition and feeling that you're not enough is, is really it's tremendous. There's so much pressure for these kids. My sense is that we as parents need to do all that we can to alleviate that. Justin, about resilient conversations, I know that resilience is a particular um, area of interest for you. How can we as parents turn situations around to, to make uh, our conversations, our, our, living, you know, our, our living side by side to build the resilience in our children? Oh, well, that's such a big question. Um, We've got five minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, let's dive into it and let me share a handful of things that I think can be helpful. The most important thing for building resilience, I, I can't tell you how many parents come to me and say, my, 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 my son is struggling, my daughter's having a hard time. And, and the first thing that I normally ask is, tell me a bit about how much time you're spending with them. And I consistently hear these people say, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm really busy. There's a lot of pressure. Um, 
I think the number one thing, when we look at what the research tells us and has been telling us for a good 20 or 30 years now, since resilience became a buzzword, what the data seems to say is if there is one significant adult in our children's lives that they can turn to and be heard, to know that they matter, to feel that they belong, that seems to be the number one predictor of resilience. Ideally, it will be you as the parent, but the reality is sometimes it won't be for whatever reason. Our relationships might be a little bit fractured, uh, but that is the number one predictor of resilience and well-being, having one caring, rock-solid adult who is absolutely there, having kids who really believe that I'm the favourite, I'm the one, even, I mean, I've got six kids and I love listening to them fight about who's the favourite because they actually all think that they are and that just brings me so much joy. It means I think I'm getting this reasonably right. I think, I think it's going okay. They need to believe that they matter. They need to believe that they belong. Uh, Emmy Werner's research is foundational in this area and she just found that um, whether it's a, a scout leader or a church leader or a school teacher or a sports coach or a parent, or a neighbor, or a grandparent, or an auntie, or an uncle, one adult who is absolutely there that they know they can turn to, that they can cry on their shoulder, that they can um, share their joys. That, that's, that's the number one predictor of resilience. And we don't get that relationship unless we're investing the time. It doesn't come from having two minutes of quality time here and three minutes of quality time there. It comes from a genuine investment of time, magic mornings where we're connecting rather than correcting and directing. Um, night times where there's lots of nurture and time spent together. Super Saturdays or, I mean, look, maybe you can't do Super Saturday. I had one bloke in an audience once. He said, bro, he was a Kiwi fella. He said, bro, we don't do Super Saturday. We do Chup Tuesday. I said, Chup Tuesday? What's Chup Tuesday, cuz? <laughs> and he said, Chup Tuesday is, uh, that's the night where we, we make sure that there is nothing on Chip Tuesday and we go down to the local fish and chip shop and we buy our chips and we buy a loaf of bread and tomato sauce and we sit in the park or we sit at the beach and we eat our chips on Tuesday. It's Chip Tuesday. Um, we, we build these traditions and we build these relationships by spending time. So that's the number one predictor. Let me give you a couple of other things that build resilience really quickly. The first one that I would mention is uh, creating a sense of identity, knowing who I am. Research tells us clearly that kids who have a strong sense of who they are are much more resilient. Their well-being is much higher. And, and typically, kids aren't thinking about who they are until at least their teen years. And even you, Jackie, as a mature adult, and certainly me, our identities are continually being refined. They're continually growing and developing in, in, vari in a variety of ways. But typically, in, in teenage years, that's when identity development really kicks off in a, in a substantial way. Until then... We build identity in kids by looking at a more expansive view of identity. That is, what is our family identity? What's our family about? We're a caring, sharing family. We're a kind family. We're a service-oriented family. We're a, a family who does hard things. We're a family that gets things done. We're a family that all pulls together. Uh, we're a family that has this racial background or this religious background or this affiliation with whatever it is that makes us us. That is how we build identity with our kids from the earliest years. We, we talk about uh, at the dinner table, 
what would you do if you're in this situation? We give them hypotheticals. Maybe when they're um, in grade three, we talk to them about if you heard people using words that we don't say at home, using swear words, bad words, what's the best way to respond? If they're in grade five, how do you respond if um, one of your friends starts talking to you about pornography? Do you know what pornography is? How would you respond if you were exposed to it? Uh, what, what do you think about it? If they're going into grade seven, we talk to them about how would you deal with one of your friends if they tried to get you to drink alcohol or um, grade eight? What if they were trying to get you to... Uh, consume illicit substances, um, grade nine, what happens if you're at a party and you discover that there's a girl in a bedroom and four boys have just walked in there and you know that she's not coherent? Uh, so we're, we're creating a sense of identity by putting them into these hypothetical situations so that they can work out who they are. You don't know what your identity is if you don't know what your values are and you don't know what your values are until your values are tested. Isn't it better to test those values in the home in a safe way with hypothetical conversations than waiting until your 16 year old is at that party where that really unsafe issue is unraveling? Uh, that's how we build identity. We get them to develop their values, question their values and feel like they're part of something bigger. We talk to them about their family history. You know those family history shows where people burst into tears because they find out that in the 1700s, that person that they're related to did that thing. Uh, and we're sort of thinking, you're crying about somebody that lived 200, 300 years ago. What's going on here? And yet, when we know what our roots are and we feel connections to our roots, we feel a stronger sense of self and a stronger sense of purpose. If we want to build resilience, we let our kids know that they matter and belong. We help them to build a sense of identity. And I think the other thing, the last thing that I'll mention just now to build resilience is that we want to focus on their strengths. We spend so much time trying to shape them and mold them and fix up their deficits and their weaknesses. And we simply don't talk about their strengths. We don't talk about where they're winning, what they're getting right. And I don't mean winning in a competitive sense. I mean, winning as in what makes them come alive. I think that if we want our kids to be resilient, they need to know that we're proud of them. They need to hear us talk specifically about what we're proud of. But if I go right back to the beginning, the number one thing for resilience is making sure that they hear three special words all the time. And those three special words are not, I love you. It's the three words that come after that. I love you, no matter what when our kids know that we love them no matter what they feel confident they feel encouraged they feel supported they feel well and they'll be resilient beautiful dustin colson thank you so much for your time today it's been an absolute delight i wish we had more time but thanks for chatting jackie thank you to our guest speaker we hope you enjoyed today's topic Want to know more about this podcast and other VPC podcasts? Please visit the VPC website, vicparentscouncil.vic.edu.au and leave a review. We would also welcome you to contact us if you would like to be our guest or if you have a topic around parenting and education. Thank you to Melbourne singer Emma Sydney for her permission to use her soundtrack, Cherish. Until next time, thank you for listening.